Well, hello everybody and welcome to Dorchester Community Church. My name is Roger. I'm one of the leaders of the church here. It's great to have you watching us, joining us uh, via live stream, but it's also great to have you here. Just demonstrate that we have real people here in the building. That's not canned applause whatsoever. We're here to worship God. We're here to celebrate. As a church, our strap line is celebrating and sharing the love of God. It falls to us to cover the Bible readings for Joseph's life in Egypt as we come to the end of our series. So we're reading from Genesis chapter 45 through to chapter 50. So, and I am this old, of course, if you're sitting comfortably, (laughs) we'll begin. But we're not reading all of it. Don't panic. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Sorry, my fault. And now, do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives, God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Then he sent his brothers away And as they were leaving, he said to them, Don't quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, 
And when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel set out with all that was his. And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob. Here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you. And I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please... Forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived a hundred and ten years. Thank you, Robin. And thank you, Jill, for that um, brilliantly read between the two of you uh, piece of narrative.
Well, hello again, everybody. It may well be that as we're looking across six chapters today, that can be a little bit uh, difficult for us to be kind of guessing some of the in-betweeny bits. It could well be that if you're here for the first time today, it's a bit like picking up a new book and thinking, I'm going to start with the final chapter, because this is the final part of our series that we've been going through for two months called Dealing with Changing Times. There's all sorts of uh, changing times that's going on, isn't there? Uh, in our world. So trust that God will bless each and every one of us, whatever stage we're at on our own journey. And if you've missed any of this series, you can download that from our website as and when. The last time that I was at an airport was the 6th of July, 2017. Now, I know that was the exact date because I've got a little video clip, which I undenied about whether or not to show you, but I decided for my own uh, safety that I, I wouldn't show you this video clip because it was at the time when I stood waiting at Heathrow for my daughter to arrive on the, her way back from Australia, which is where uh, she is now living. And as I was there waiting, I was looking around at some of the other couples and the other families as they were being reunited one with another. And, and of course, there was all this gushing of, of emotion, which was quite lovely to watch. And then there was my moment as my daughter, Gemma, walked towards me with this beaming grin, which got faster and faster as she was then hurrying along with all of her, her suitcases. And then, of course, we embraced, and there was that sense of emotion. And I guess if you can picture that or you can uh, think of yourselves being in that uh, in that um, place at, at an airport or being reunited after not having seen your own family uh, for some time through COVID, you get the picture of the beauty and the power of that sense of being reunited with loved ones again. It's not an exaggeration, is it, to say that relationships are the most important thing in our lives. The two greatest commandments in the Bible are to do with right relationships. First, our own towards God, but then secondly, our own relationships one to another. When there's broken relationships, either towards God or one with another or in the church, then that breaks God's heart. Our God is a God who is in the business of reconciling broken relationships. It's powerful and emotional to then witness a fractured family being reconciled and reunited. That's why Genesis chapter 45 is such a moving chapter. We're allowed to look in on the reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers after 22 years of separation and estrangement. Now, bear in mind that we've only got snapshots of the conversation. We've only had snapshots of the verses that we've had read to us. But I dare say we can feel something of the pointers that come to mind uh, in the power of that um, being reconciled. The key to reconciliation is our attitude, isn't it? And the key to our attitude is in us being willing to submit ourselves completely to God and to his sovereignty. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God's word says these words, God has given to us the ministry of 
reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So what do we get from these verses? We're going to think a little bit about these uh, five or six chapters uh, firstly, and then we're going to break. Someone's going to share a testimony, and then we're going to pick up to maybe remind ourselves of some of the things that come through the whole of that uh, story that we get from Genesis 39 uh, onwards as we bring this series to a conclusion. And firstly, I want us to say this, that we need to understand what God is like. And we get that through looking at these verses. There must have been quite a roller coaster ride for Joseph, but it must have seemed worth it when suddenly he chooses to reveal himself to his brothers. These brothers who didn't recognize him, they're petrified, knowing their guilt and what their deeds deserved. They're also aware that they're standing in the presence of the one who could end their life just like that, because Joseph was now prime minister of Egypt. That word there that says that they were terrified in verse 3 of chapter 45 is used to describe the feeling which swept over a group of men in battle when suddenly the enemy turned on them and they realized they were doomed. And the sense of terror that so swamped them is how those brothers would have felt. How do we suddenly feel if we then are feeling exposed or having to, to give an account Of course, one day we will have to give an account, each and every one of us. Joseph, though, oozes grace, and he's been called a a picture or a type of Christ. And we see that in a number of ways, and we'll touch on that through uh, today. But firstly, in verse 4, he says, come close to me. And if Joseph is a type of Christ, then really that's the words that Christ would say to each and every one of us, isn't it? Come close to me and before we hesitate and say yeah but you don't know really god what what i'm really like well of course he does and the brothers they knew what they were like but still joseph all knowing about what had gone on about what they put him through says come close to me they can't believe it they're on the receiving end of what they don't deserve and what they could never earn and that's a picture of what we call grace isn't it in the church it's also a picture of you and me before a holy God, being able to receive what we don't really deserve. And we spoke a lot about that last week, but we can't ignore it here as well today. Joseph explains how they'd all intended all their their bad for his harm, but that God has somehow turned that around. But God, he says, but God appears in scripture a lot of times. If you're into word studies, do a word study of but God, which is very often, this is the situation, but God. And then there's a positive that results. You could maybe do the same thing in your own life. This was where my life was going, but God. And then God comes in and turns things around. This is what Joseph is in essence saying to his brothers. It was God that sent me here. It was God that arranged it all. It was God who was working out his purpose. Do we choose to see God in our own situation is a challenge, isn't it? 
When tempted to ask God, well, what's going wrong? Or to blame him that we can do for our circumstances or what's been our lot that's come our way. To make a decision to choose to see God is a brave one. It's a courageous one. It takes a great deal of faith. But that's what Joseph is modeling here. God had worked in Joseph and through him in his various situations, and he can therefore work in ourselves too. That's not meant to mean that God makes bad things happen to Joseph any more than he makes bad things happen to us. I don't think that's the case. The God I worship and love is not a sadist. But rather, and there's those uh, two words, but God can use any situation that comes our way to bring about his greater purposes, even in the likes of you or me. And that's good news. Joseph not only forgives his brothers, he invites them to join them so that they might be further blessed. He does this because of the change of heart. He's witnessed over uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the recent months and whatever with his brothers. The story then climaxes in this reunion between Joseph and his father, Jacob, which uh, comes somewhat later after 25 years apart. You can see that from chapter 46 as we move on, verse 29. There's joy, there's tears, there's emotion and another reconciliation. I wonder if you've ever felt that joy of reunion. Maybe it's been a child that's been away or you haven't seen a parent for a while. And there's been countless stories, hasn't there, in a, in a COVID season that, that we've had that's gone over a year now where some people say, I've seen my family, for, I've seen a close friend, whatever it may be, for the first time in over a year. And you can sense that, that excitement as people share their stories. Some of us have even been excited to see somebody else from church that we've not seen for ages, haven't we? Okay, not everybody, evidently, but uh, but there's been a few people that have really enjoyed that opportunity. Maybe for the brothers, it all seems a bit too good to be true. And very often as we talk about what the Christian gospel is, it can seem too good to be true. You know, the brothers still felt it must have been too good to be true right towards the end of their dad, Jacob's life. 17 years later, 17 years after that first reunion and first expression of forgiveness, because immediately guilt rears its ugly head again as the brothers think Joseph is going to now seek revenge. They couldn't fully accept the grace that had been extended towards them. They had been forgiven. But they themselves had not forgotten. What a picture of so many Christians I come across. From since way back that I know that God forgave me back then. But oh, it's only slightly under the surface. And we get a little chink of a reminder. Oh, I wonder if God really has forgiven me. Joseph sets the record straight with them. We looked at that verse last week in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, which is a brilliant verse. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Remember the picture last week that Robin brought us of the dustbin at the foot of the cross, a very powerful image. Remember us exploring that whole area and subject of guilt the week before that. The week before that, remember Paul Ellis uh, unpacking and, and sharing with us about us making a choice to forgive others. All of those build on the repeated themes of God's amazing 
grace. That's why we're able to understand what God is like through these chapters of Genesis. But there's also a bit of a warning here practically as well. And that's that you and I might keep on our guard. We haven't arrived yet, have we? It's not that we cross a line and now all is okay and plain sailing. You don't need me to remind you of that, I'm sure. Well, I just have, but there we go. Even after all these blessings that Joseph's brothers had received extra food, you may well remember, extra material possessions, and having proved they've changed and softened, Joseph knows his brothers are probably not likely to be the finished article. As they leave to go to bring back their father in Genesis uh, 45, Joseph then says, "Uh, guys, don't quarrel on the way. (laughs) A very simple, short few words, don't quarrel on the way. It was going to be no more than a week's journey. He kind of adds this as a throwaway comment, it seems. The brothers have have received and have got more than ever before. So why did Joseph say that? Don't quarrel on the way. Was there any need for that? Well, maybe because even though Joseph trusts his brothers, he's not going to trust human nature. Old habits die hard, don't they? People do change. But patterns of behavior rarely change without a struggle. Even if God has stepped into our lives in a particular way and we felt that sense of release, change, healing, freedom, whatever it is, we know there's still that vulnerability and weak spot very often, don't we? And I guess that was what Joseph was thinking about his brothers. That word quarrel means to be agitated or perturbed. It's often a a word that was used before uh, of of how people before a fight uh, breaks out uh, can be, that sense of quarrel. Maybe they might still have had a sense of wanting to blame one another. Who was to blame most? Maybe they were going to be still annoyed that Benjamin was now the the favoured one. Maybe, Maybe Joseph just knew that there was always the potential for one of his brothers to blow. Remember certain kids when you were at school were always the ones to get into trouble. Remember that? You could probably think back to some of their nicknames as well. And if anybody was lined up outside headmaster's office, it would have been them. Or it would have been Chris Webb or somebody like that. We can picture those kids. Do you ever wonder where where they are now and what they're doing now? I'm sure many of them are doing absolutely great. We all need a reminder, I think. Despite whatever changes have gone on, despite the good and God's grace and whatever blessings we have, every now and then we need maybe to hear the words, don't quarrel on the way, because we do tend to bicker every now and then, or have the potential to fall out with one another, or our different viewpoints are so much in conflict. Why is it that people can't realise that they're wrong and I'm right? Of course, we don't audibly say that but it can be what we feel can't it and if ever there was a need to remind us of that we have our covid season where we have those of us who are desperately eager to church to to sing in church and feel we should and others who are feeling completely the opposite because of what government is saying and we shouldn't The whole thing of social distancing and how close and who that's meant for. The hug that apparently is going to break the bones if you have one from Lisa or otherwise, or should we keep our distance? Whether we meet together or whether we don't. 
I have so many black and white opinions from members of this church, but black and white opinions that are opposing one another. Don't quarrel on the way is probably a relevant word for our own particular season. It's okay to have our own particular viewpoint. And I know we can each probably justify our viewpoint from a scientific or medical or maybe even economic perspective. But we can all do that. And yet we still have different opinions about things, don't we? Currently, it's the whole COVID thing. And we're wrestling with that. That's tough. But don't quarrel on the way. There are bigger things at stake as we seek to be church. We need to remind ourselves of Jesus' word into any and every situation. This is my command. He says, love one another. John 15, 17. Simple words. Don't quarrel on the way. Love one another. Okay to have different viewpoints. But let's move forward as one amidst those different viewpoints. We've been thinking about the ups and downs of life, and we're going to do that again quite shortly. Throughout this series, what we've also given the opportunity to is for any of you that would like to share a testimony to do that. And we've heard from several people, not that many, and it would have been great if others would have felt, hey, God spoke to me in a particular area there and uh, and wanting to share something. Uh, Charlene has uh, uh, spoke to me a couple of weeks back and said, this theme of the ups and downs of life, I, I got a feeling God wants me to share something about that. So very bravely, very openly, Charlene's going to come forward now and share something of her own ups and downs in her own life. And then she's going to be ministering to us in song. And then after that, she's going to lead us in a time of prayer. Thanks, Charlene. Morning, everybody. It's always a little bit sort of scary sharing, but um, if God sort of tells you to do something, you um, have to be obedient. Rejection, childhood illness, bullying leading to physical harm scoliosis, autism spectrum disorder, mitral heart valve, humiliation, false accusations, betrayal by friends and family, life threatened, rape, sexual, physical, emotional and financial abuse, cheated on, marital breakdown, losing my family home, unemployment, single mom, poverty, racism, sexual harassment, discrimination, exclusion, unfair treatment, lost my father to Alzheimer's, family member and a friend murdered, suicide in the family, family members with cancer, carpal tunnel syndrome, PTSD, unfit for work, financial difficulties and a biopsy tomorrow. This is a list of some of the downs in my life and of course there has been ups as well but I wanted to highlight the only up that truly matters Um, and that carries me through all the difficult times I have faced and am facing. And that is when Jesus went up on the cross. Because of what he did for me and for you, we can look up and we can stand up again and again and have the promises of everlasting life when this race is finished. Um, I, I normally like to use stupid little visual aids, so I've brought with me today Sorry, it's really difficult to see far away. Some of you might know what this is. <laughs> it's a washing liquid when you do washing. 
And I always say, um, yes, we all got the Holy Spirit inside us, and it shows, well, some of us show that God lives in us, so the label, I'm a Christian, look, I'm coping well. But um, it's just, if you put this on top of towels or your bed, it's not going to just clean it, is it? <laughs> and I think um, if you sort of think of yourself as the, as the vessel and you contain Lord Jesus, you need to open that lid to access him and allow him in and out of your life. And also, just as the labels on the back say how you have to deal with, you know, blood stains or, you know, grass stains, so too we have for our vessel is instructions in the Bible on how to use the Holy Spirit and all the stories of other people in here. And, and like the story of Joseph, I can really relate to all that. I feel like I'm in that sort of in the prison and will the cupbearer remember me <laughs> sort of stage. <laughs> but um, I think it's just remembering that these were real people in the Bible and their stories are there to, to help us and to give us hope and courage to get through difficulties. And I always think rock bottom is a good place, especially if the rock of ages is that rock. Always go down and, and meet him there, and he will build you up. And please do not fear uh, fears or doubts, because they give you an opportunity to exercise your faith. Um, just as weights at the gym sort of makes your muscles bigger, Fear and doubt gives you an opportunity to exercise your faith and it will grow over time and you'll get stronger um, and be able to work through adversity and life's ups and downs. I'm just going to ask my lovely band members. We're going to sing a song. Um, it's Peace Be Still. And I think sometimes God just wants us to be still so we can hear him. Um, and he leaves us with peace that is really unexplainable. Um, and when it comes over you, you can cope with anything. Um, the song starts that you don't want to be afraid, but you are. And I think when we start with a situation in our lives, we are fearful, um, but we don't want to be. And I think when you invite God into the situation, then you have the courage to not fear. So it starts off with being very scary, but then you're going to fight that fear with the help of Jesus. Dear Lord Jesus, Thank you that we can come before you together this morning. We praise you, Lord. Thank you that you gave us the Bible and for all the stories of the different people, real-life people, a guide to how we too can relate to what they went through in our lives, how they walked with you. I pray we can see the word with fresh eyes and a refreshed spirit. Heavenly Father, we call you into the situations in our individual lives. Be our strength. Let us be our strongest in our weaknesses. You are in control. We pray for our church and all the different ministries. Bless us as we move forward with the gradual relaxation of lockdown restrictions. Lord, help us with the logistics, more fellowship opportunities in junior church ministry, worship, outreach, serving and leadership. We pray blessing and healing over those known to us that are in the middle of a storm of their own. Janie, Marion, Christine, Marjorie, Graham and Karen, Chris, Louise, Henry, Bryony and Benjamin, Millie, 
Thelma and her son, Paul, and his wife, Sue. We also lift up those who we don't know are suffering. Thank you, Lord, for the comfort that you know who they are. Bless us all, Lord, and help us to live and worship with contagious joy and gratitude. We love you, Lord, and thank you for who you are and who we can be in Christ Jesus. In your mighty name, amen. There's two more things that I want us to think about uh, today. One is as we just draw things together at the end of this series. But then there's something else that comes up towards the end of those closing chapters uh, that I felt was important to say uh, about, and I'll come back to that shortly. The first thing, though, is this. Involve God in everything. If you read through Genesis 39 through uh, to 50, one of the things that are most noticeable in terms of the characteristic of Joseph throughout those uh, chapters is the centrality of God in his own life. And so often it strikes me that even if God is a part of our lives, he's not always the centre, is he? It may well be he's the spoke uh, in the wheel of life, but he's not always the hub. And yet when you actually look through at Joseph's life, he comes back to time and time and time again, God in his life. God is at the forefront of his mind. Here's some of the, uh, sort of like a machine gun effect, if you like, of some of the, of the verses. When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce uh, Joseph, he immediately thought of God. 30, chapter 39, verse 9. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? When he was in the dungeon and the cupbearer and baker had their dreams, Joseph's response was, do not all interpretations belong to God, chapter 40, verse 8. When he was called before Pharaoh, who said, I hear you can interpret dreams. Joseph said, it's not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Chapter 41, verse 16. And in giving Pharaoh the interpretation, God, uh, Joseph got there eventually. Joseph used God's name four times to underscore to Pharaoh that it was God who was telling him, what was about to happen. And you see that again through chapter 41. When Joseph's wife bore him two sons, he gave them names which bore witness to God's faithfulness. The firstborn, Manasseh, saying, meaning, God has made me forget all my trouble. And he named the second, Ephraim, saying, God has made me fruitful. That's in chapter 41 later on. When Joseph's brothers came to buy grain, even though Joseph wanted to disguise himself from them, he couldn't hide his relationship with God from them. He told them, do this and live, for I fear God, in chapter 42. Joseph Stewart had told the uh, the worried brothers concerning the money that was returned to their sacks. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. Chapter 43, verse 23. It would have been Joseph who told the steward to say that. Chapter 43, later on, verse 29, when they returned, Joseph, when they returned uh, with Benjamin, Joseph, still disguising himself, said to his brother, may God be gracious to you my son. And they're right towards the end of of Genesis, when Joseph's brothers feared that he would pay them back now that their father was dead. His reply was, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God 
meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive in chapter 50. And later on in that final chapter, just before his own death, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you. From first to last, through the ups and through the downs, God was at the very centre of Joseph's life and clearly at the forefront of his mind. I found myself asking myself a question. Where is God in my life? Simple question, really. Of course, when the sun is shining and things are going okay, it's very easy to use the name of God about how good he is, isn't it? But when we get that wiggly curve, as we saw um, portrayed to us in the red paint going a bit down, it's not always as easy to see God in our lives or to think or remember God. I wonder what other people would say of us about the genuineness or the reality of God in our lives. There's a challenge that comes through those 11 or 12 chapters, it strikes me, about our seeking to involve God in everything. Whatever it is practically that you're doing today, involve God. Whatever is a positive thing today, praise God. Whenever things are tough, then turn to God. Whether it's an up or a down, involve him in everything. One more thing that I want to say today, which is uh, towards the end of the closing chapters, and it's to do with death. Well, that's a cheerful subject, isn't it? Uh, if you uh, sort of want to lose your congregation, then you're going to talk about either death or worse than that, money uh, or something like that. But we can't ignore it. And it's been put on my mind for us to uh, talk about very briefly today. It's something that is a common denominator for each and every one of us. And you'll know why. Because unless I know Jesus comes again, if I don't add that in, I will get three emails to remind me of that. But unless Jesus does come again imminently, then there's a 100% chance that you and I are going to die. Is that right? Yeah, it is. We're all in agreement. We are not going to quarrel on the way. We're on the same page with regards to that. We don't know when. But what we do know is that today you are closer to your own death than you have ever been in any other day in your life. Not rocket science, really, but it does nudge us ever closer to being prepared for it. The importance of that. I don't think our culture does death very well. We don't tend to think about it. We don't really tend to think about it or talk about it a great deal in the church. I can remember that churches together hosted something that was called, maybe not the best of names, but it was called a death cafe. And uh, I was the only person from this church that went along uh, to that death cafe. Might sound pretty grim. If you can imagine any question that might come up to do with your own funeral or the funeral or end of a loved one or someone that you know, these questions were all written out on separate sheets of paper. And we were just encouraged over a coffee round a table to just pick one of these questions and think about what we thought about that. There were no right or wrong answers. 
it just brought to the surface some of life's first order questions. Some of them practical, some of them spiritual. All of them incredibly important, I felt. And in terms of gauging the response of others that were there with me, I thought, wow, this, this is incredibly meaningful for people that are there. A variety of ages uh, present, more elderly than, than younger, won't surprise you. That was then run a second time. And because I'd now done this, uh, death, this deaf cafe, I could plug it and promote it to you lot with a lot more passion and sense of clarity with what it was all about. You were so enthused about it that I was still the only person that turned up the second time around. So thank you for your support in that regard. But it highlights the fact that we don't really want to go there, do we? We'll wait until that is pretty close when we're forced to think about it. And yet, even though we might not want to touch on it this morning, the Bible speaks a lot about death. And I want us to think about death in regards to us uh, preparing to face death positively. Certainly, uh, that's what Jacob does, Joseph's father. There's no woe is me about it when he's thinking about his own death. In Genesis 45, verse 28, this is when the brothers come back from Egypt and tell him that Joseph is alive. This is the dad's response. And Israel, that's Jacob, said, it's enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. Straight away, death is right on the horizon for him in his mindset. Then the next chapter, chapter 46, when Joseph and Jacob are finally reunited, they embrace each other and weep on each other for a good while, the text says. And then in verse 30, Jacob said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. I'm ready. I'm ready to go right now. Are you ready? I'm not saying this afternoon necessarily, but has that crossed your mind? Then again, at the end of chapter 47, Jacob gives gives Joseph very specific instructions about his burial and what is going to take place or what should take place after he dies. Have you mapped out your funeral? Have you thought about who's going to have what and what you want to say to your loved ones whilst you're here in the here and now and able to do so? Then in chapters 48 to 49, which we didn't uh, read most of today at all, you have two full chapters that are essentially Jacob addressing his children and his grandchildren before his impending death. There's a, a lot of space that's taken up here with Jacob's dying thoughts and dying words. We need to know how to prepare for our own death. We need to know how to deal with death when it happens in our families and we need to know whether there's hope and where that hope can be found so alongside the natural and understandable pain and grief associated with death we're able with God's grace and help to embrace this whole subject of death positively Christians of other generations didn't have a problem with this at all. I could have shared a lot of quotes. I'm going to share just two. There are whole books written about it. 
One, one guy, Thomas Akempi, a pre-Reformation Catholic mystic, said, Happy is he that always hath the hour of his death before his eyes, and daily prepareth himself to die. I don't know how you feel about that, but here was a guy who thought, I'm not going to be phased by this. I know this is coming. I want to be ready. And we each should. Jonathan Edwards, a man massively used of God, wrote 17 resolutions when he was a young man about his own death. One of them being this. I resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. We just don't think like that. Now, obviously, because of the very nature of what I do as a job, I'm involved with families from time to time. I think there are only two people that have spoken to me pre they're getting ill and unwell about their pending death that have said, look, I don't know when this is going to happen, but I'd like to talk to you about my, my funeral and my wishes. And I'd like to, to think through back, backwards and forwards some of my thoughts to see what somebody else would think about that. Jacob says, my years have been few and difficult. Do you know how old he was when he said that? A hundred and thirty. A hundred and thirty. So his years don't really seem that few, do they, when we think about that? He lives for another 17, and then he dies at the very ripe old age of the snooker maximum break of 147. By the way, there are other non biblical uh, sources from the ancient world that also record um, extreme old ages uh, for people at that time so it's not implausible at all the point is this even though he was way older than probably we're going to be he saw his years on earth as being just a dot not a squiggly line just a dot which in the context of eternity which is what we're here for they are aren't they so we might as well think about and be ready for when our own dot of death is going to come and think about that which is beyond i read this this week which i quite liked when i was a child i laughed and wept time crept when as a youth i dreamed and talked time walked when i became a full-grown man time ran when older still I grew, time flew. Soon I shall find in passing on, time gone. Your life is brief. My life is brief. Scripture describes it as a vapor, a mist that quickly disappears in James chapter 4. And we begin thinking about the book of James over the coming few months. It appears for a little while and then vanishes. Given the brevity of life, we, each of us, I believe, ought to prepare for our own death. What about writing your story, your own testimony of your life, and in doing so, doing so in uh, such a way that speaks of the faithfulness of God through all the ups and downs of your life, so that that which you are leaving for those that you know and those that you love, they can't escape for that ongoing memory of this is what you believed in and what you stood for. Just a thought. Jacob had important things to say to his own children 
while he was alive. I don't know why he saved this until he was at death's door. There was a lot more improvement he could have done as, with a, as a dad, and, and we touched on that very briefly. Some of those things that he had to pass on weren't that easy or that comfortable, but he wanted to make the most of saying with that which he felt he wanted to say. He didn't want to leave it until it was too late and to then live with the regret of never having said what he wanted to say. Again, talking with people as they prepare for the funeral of a loved one, the whole subject of regret comes up quite a lot, particularly if there's been some sense of breakdown in a family relationship. And it's too late to put anything right. Too late. Sometimes it's because the individual that it's too late for has been waiting for the one who is deceased now to come and say sorry to them because it was their fault. Why not be the bigger person? Isn't that what scripture advocates? Why not seek to make the most of things whilst we can? Thinking practically, and I I want to be as sensitive as I can, but I want us to think about demonstrating that we do genuinely have an eternal perspective that we sing songs about as Christians and that uh, 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 the word of God uh, sort of echoes, doesn't it? That we ought to live in the context of all eternity. What about in so doing, leaving a legacy to God's work in your will. This is something that I've mentioned here before. Many people don't even make a will at all, which shows they never think about the future, never think or assume that death will happen to them, or if it does, then so be it. If there is any individual on the planet that ought to be thinking about life beyond the grave and impacting eternity, it ought to be Christian believers, did it not? I do not understand any believer not thinking about life beyond the grave. For many of us, the time when we are most able to impact the kingdom of God financially will be when we snuff it, to be quite frank. Have a think about it. So I just throw this out there. If you haven't yet made a will, consider making one this week. If you've made a will, but everything goes to your kids or whatever it is, I want you to consider what it is that you might be able to impact the kingdom of God in, in reshaping your will. It's not something that I'm dictating. Obviously, I can't do that. This is a private matter. But it's something that I think is very important for ourselves as believers to think through. To not reflect that in some shape or form when we sing so many songs and speak so much about all eternity seems a little bit of a contradiction in terms, if not an oversight. What about, though, when a loved one dies? We get a bit embarrassed sometimes about the emotions that we may well uh, feel, but don't be ashamed. Grief is very real, and Scripture would seem to be talking about that in a very open way. Genesis chapter 50, Joseph, this prime minister, falls on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph was broken, absolutely broken, 
devastated, even though for him, he knew the death of his dad was coming. It's okay, and it's to be expected. There's no shame whatsoever in outward emotion. Grieving has no end date on it either. I know many of you are still in a place of working through your grief for a loved one who has died. There is no easy way to click out of that, is there? Because the one that you loved is no longer here. It could well be a parent, it could well be a spouse, or it could be a child or someone else close to you. For some, you may well always feel that sense of loss. But alongside that pain, we also need to make a decision to choose to live. In Genesis 50 verse 14, we read there that after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone with him to bury their father. Why? To carry on with his life to carry on with the role that he was in, to carry on with the job of being prime minister. Whatever role you were in before and are still able to be in now, it's right that we make a choice to live again. Not that we then have to to delete any sense of pain or grief that we're feeling, but it's right that we choose to live again. And as we do so, whatever it is that we may well be feeling in our grief, let's hold on to hope. We are a people of hope, and it would be um, pretty thoughtless and wrong of me to not mention this as we close. In Acts chapter 2, in Peter's sermon, he tells us that Jesus died, that the grave could not hold him. The grave could not hold him. He conquered it. This Jesus triumphed over it. Therefore, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, it is possible for us to have hope. We have hope that death is not the end. We have hope that there is resurrection that is certain for the Christian. We have hope that even in our death, even when we face death ourselves, if we face it in Jesus, we face it as those who will be welcomed with open arms by the loving embrace of our Saviour. And that is indeed good news. It's the number one reason why we should face death positively and not be embarrassed or feel ashamed about it philippians chapter 1 verse 21 paul said for me to live is christ that's a good thing but to die is louder gain so let's not live or act as if it's worse which sometimes we can be tempted to do so evening as a believer in the word that says those words. Let's pray together. Father God, we want to say thank you that we can say along with Paul that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Father, we have spoken of a lot this morning about your grace We've spoken about the challenge that we get through Joseph's life and thinking about it, about how at the forefront of his mind his God was. And I wonder how clear that is to others about how evident that is in my life. 
Forgive me for those times where I don't portray that as I should. And as we think of the matters of death, and maybe for some of us, we've had uncomfortable feelings brought back to the service. Father, we pray that you'd help us with those feelings. We pray that we would be open-hearted and open-handed to receive a touch of your healing, your healing power and love into those deep, deep wounds. But alongside that pain, help us, Lord God, to embrace this gospel we believe in and to passionately not lose sight of the hope that there is beyond the grave. Help us to that end, we pray, in the mighty name of the one who conquered death itself. Our Lord Jesus. Amen. It would have been um, quite easy, wouldn't it, for, uh, for Joseph to have let his potential anger become bitterness. To have let temptation that he went through lead to immorality. To let his fear foster despair. To let his suffering turn to self-pity. Joseph had ample ammunition and power with which to formulate this incredible revenge against his ruthless brothers. Should the opportunity ever present itself. And it did. But through it all, he stayed steady and exhibited that gentle, forgiving spirit and allowed God to work in him and through him. I want to just end our time together with two quotes that I've come across. One from of old and one more recent from a particular pastor. It's a guy by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse who said these words, in the context of the story of Joseph. To see God in all things, both good and evil, enables us to forgive more easily those who injure us. It does not incline us to condone their fault as if they were unconscious instruments, for they act as freely as if God had no part at all. But we can forgive and pray for them, for they are the unwitting benefactors to our souls. This is strongly exemplified in Joseph, for he saw the hand of God overruling the designs of his brothers. And from that consideration, he not only readily forgave them, but entreated them not to be grieved. Since whatever had been their intentions, God had used their misdeeds to accomplish his own gracious purposes. And a guy by the name of Pastor Lloyd Stilly states these words. What this world needs right now is to see uh, real Christians who are willing to stand out in the crowd because they simply believe God and his word. Life is not always fair, but God is always good. Circumstances out of our control will come our way, but God is always sovereign. Let today be the day of relief and release. Time to stop carrying our wounds and let him who was wounded for our sakes take them.
I hope those quotes are helpful. Trust that if there's any, anything that you'd like to speak about or question or maybe debate because you don't agree with everything, that you will get in touch. We value any comments that we do receive. But through it all, trust that you will see the benefit of trusting and turning to God's word as we have learned and discovered through our time looking at this series of Joseph. Thanks so much for joining us. Next week, we've got a new series, which we're titling No Restrictions. Sounds interesting. If you want to know any more, read the book of James. God bless you. Thanks for joining us.